The intermittent warfare between the Black Panthers and police erupted today in Los Angeles. There, a group of them, three women and eight men, barricaded themselves in their headquarters and fought police with automatic weapons and hand grenades for five hours before surrendering. Three policemen were wounded. The fight in Los Angeles came only four days after the shootout in Chicago, in which two Black Panthers were killed by police. Early this morning, Los Angeles police moved on the local Black Panther headquarters to serve arrest and search warrants. They were met by gunfire. Three policemen were wounded in the first shooting, and a long siege began. Everyone was ordered out of the area, and the battle went on sporadically for five hours. began to tear gas the building and threatened to go in after the occupants. Finally, a white flag emerged and 11 men and women filed out. What's going on, everyone? What's going on? We are back. We are back with another great episode of the Ape Academy podcast, Act Protect Engage. I'm your host, as usual, the same guy, <laughs> the same monotone voice every single time, Mr. Chase H., Thank you for joining me today. So, we're getting a little deeper now, all right? We talked a little bit about the introductions to Bobby Seal and Huey P. Newton. Now we're going to talk about the early experiences of the Panthers, meaning what really shaped their ideology, what drove them, what kind of formed their consciousness. That's what we're going to talk about today, okay? So, we're not doing any cookie cutter stuff. We're going to dive deep into why things happen. It's not good enough to just talk about what happened, right? Because that'd be easy. You just read off a bullet point list, you know, point by point, And then there's no explanation of context of, you know, things leading up to what happened and things that resulted from it. So we're going to take our time. God bless y'all. Stay safe. I hope you enjoy the podcast today. Ape. That's funky. What's up, guys? We're back with another great episode of the Act Protect Engage podcast. Thank you for joining us. Quick shout out. I want to thank all of our listeners, both domestically and internationally. Thank you so much. You guys are just the best. You're the reason we're doing this. You're the reason why I put in hours of research and reading and work on my presentation and my speaking skills to get everything ready for the podcast. Thank you so much for being a great support system. Okay, guys, so here we go. <laughs> We're doing our housekeeping. Now, I promise it won't be long. First things first, 
please, 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 I'm begging you, we're begging you, turn on your post notifications. You know why? If you turn them on, then when you're sitting there vegetating, watching uh, forensic files like I do with my wife every night, every night, you should hear bing. If you hear that, that means that there might be a new Act Protect Engage podcast episode streaming. So you look on your smartphone and you see that little banner that pops across the top of your screen. It says a.p.e. You know it's us, man. That's how you know new episodes are out. And also, if you could follow us, then you'll know automatically. For anyone who listens to podcasts like I do, you guys know what I'm talking about. For all my newbies, trust me, you need to subscribe, okay? Also, if you have a few extra seconds, you can rate us. Five stars would be best, obviously, but rate us honestly, and we look at the feedback, and we work on improvements, okay? Also... If you can do a quick review now, you're going to have to have like three minutes to do a review. So I don't know if your guy's schedule allows you to have extra three minutes. But if you do, we would really appreciate a shout out on the review. OK, so we're talking about a really, really scary, mind altering, life changing experience today. OK, for one of the founders of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And the founder is, remember, there are two founders, Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, okay? I think we discussed this already. In the last episode, we were introduced to them. So we learned about their childhood. We learned about uh, their early life, what kind of made them into the people they were that you know developed the party. But now we're fast-forwarding a little bit because guess what? I have multiple books on the Panthers and they're really long and detailed. So. We don't have time for that on this format, but there are a few books I do recommend if you want to learn more. I recommend uh, Black Against Empire by Joshua Bloom and Waldo E. Martin. I recommend Revolutionary Suicide, the autobiography of Huey P. Newton. Those are the two books I use for today's podcast, okay? I always use real sources. I don't rely on the internet. I read books, all right? As a historian, you can't rely on the internet. You know why? Because anyone can make up a page. Anybody can create a page on black.com and make up a whole bunch of bull crap. Now, you need historical vetted sources based on primary accounts, you know, primary accounts, primary sources, you know, interviews, magazine articles, newspaper clippings, original documents, right? Then you need secondary sources, right? So that's how you kind of draw your information from your sources, right? You search, you research, you highlight, um, and you go from there. So that's how we do it at the podcast, okay? So those are my two sources, Black Against Empire and Revolutionary Suicide, the autobiography of Huey P. Newton. He wrote it himself. That's why it's called an autobiography. All right, so where are we starting today? All right, so we're starting in Oakland in 1964. Young Huey P. Newton, he finds himself in trouble with the law again. He's been getting in trouble a lot. This time, it isn't just petty theft. It is a very serious charge. Huey stabbed the man, allegedly, at a party with a steak knife. He claimed it was in self-defense to prevent imminent bodily harm. At his trial, Huey pleaded his case, 
Usually he defended himself and he, he had a really good record. He won a lot of his cases as his own attorney, but this time his eloquence and intimate knowledge of the law was not enough. The all-white jury was not convinced. Newton received a sentence of six months in jail, most of it in solitary confinement in a place that the inmates called the soul breaker. All right, so this is a really key moment in Huey's growth, not only as a man, but as a revolutionary with his ideals, okay? Newton describes the extreme solitary confinement as the end of the world, as a literal hell on earth. Quote, you can be in jail, in jail, but the soul breaker is your last end of the world. In 1964, there were two of these deprivation cells at the Alameda County Courthouse. Each was four and a half feet wide by six feet long. That is ridiculous. By 10 feet high. The floor was dark red rubber tile and the walls were black. Just imagine a, a cell that small. Four feet wide. So four feet is probably the length of the table that I'm doing my podcast on. And six feet long is barely taller than me. So you really don't even have enough room. Like you, you can't stretch your arms out to the side at all. Right. And you have just if you're if you're hopefully you're short. If you're my height, you're, you're I mean, it's going to be like an animal. You know, have if any, any one of you guys have like a big dog and you have a cage like I had a little uh, carrier when my pit bull sugar was was a little bit smaller out of carrier. And, you know, you put the dogs in the carrier and kind of feel bad about them because it's kind of tight in there. That's how their cell was. That's a solitary confinement cell. All right. The most inhumane, torturous conditions you could put a human being in. You know, they say that in the you know, advanced, quote, advanced interrogation techniques used by our government, used by many foreign governments, you don't even have to torture people, really. They don't really torture you physically, right? They don't cut off your fingernails and pull out your freaking ears, right? What they do is they do sensory deprivation, right? They put you in a tiny cage with no light, with no interaction with human beings, or they keep you awake for long periods of time, blasting music. After a while, you'll break and you'll say anything, all right? So that's what they try to do in these prisons. They try to break you. These special units were designed specifically to drive a man insane, to transform strong men into sobbing, quivering, broken infants. If the guards wanted to, they could turn on a light in the ceiling. But Newton was always kept in the dark and naked. The stripping down and lack of light is part of the torture, the deprivation. It is why the soul breaker was called a strip cell. Some of the prisoners got a blanket, right? You got a little, you got a little cold at night. You got one small blanket. He never did, though. Sometimes prisoners got toilet paper. Sometimes the limit was two squares. And when they begged for more, they were denied with the expo- explanation that this was part of their punishment. This was because Newton refused to grovel and beg like other prisoners. So he never got anything extra. He got no blanket and he got no, uh, he only got the minimum toilet paper. He refused to obey orders from guards. And perhaps most importantly, he never backed down from a fight if threatened. So he was always in solitary because he wouldn't, he wouldn't just obey orders and he wouldn't back down from a fight. And initially 
The reason why he was thrown in solitary for the first time was because they accused him of organizing a riot, which he did not. His job, he, he actually got a pretty good job when he first got there. His job was to go from cell to cell and help, you know, talk to the prisoners, hear their grievances, and report back. It was, you're supposed to be working for the prison, right? Kind of like a mole. Like the prisoner, <laughs> the prison system, they found a guy and they're like, okay, you're going to be our in-between. But Huey never really worked with them well. Like he didn't, he hated authority. So what they did was they blamed him as the organizer of the revolt. So in the cell, there was no bunk, no sink, no toilet, nothing but bare floors, bare walls, a solid steel door, and a hole four inches wide and six inches deep in the middle of the floor. The hole was meant for the prisoner to use as a crude toilet. It was the only place to urinate and defecate. Newton goes on to describe what eating or drinking could be that eating or drinking could be another form of torture. He was only given a half gallon milk carton filled with water per week. So it was only filled halfway, right? It was filled up. It was a half of a uh, gallon of milk. Twice a day at night, the guard brought a little cup of cold split pea soup ugh, right out of the can. Sometimes the guards brought a, quote, fruit loaf, a patty of cooked vegetables, mashed together into a little ball god i'd rather not eat quote when i first went in when i first went in there i wanted to eat and stay healthy but soon i realized that there was another trick that was another trick because when i ate i had to defecate at night no light came in under the door i could not even find the hole if i had wanted to if i was desperate i had to search with my hand when i found it the hole was always slimy with the filth that had gone in before. After a few days, the hole filled up and overflowed so that I could not lie down without wallowing in my own waste. That is awful conditions. And he's naked the whole time too. So, And even if you have a blanket, it's going to get covered with poop, with urine. It's gonna, you're going to smell. It's going to be awful. The guards mocked and taunted Huey as he went into the soul breaker. Quote, I had been told I would break before the 15 days were up. Most men did. After two or three days, they would begin to scream and beg for someone to come and take them out. To tell the truth, after two or three days, I was in bad shape. Why I would not break, I do not know. Stubbornness, probably? I did not want to beg. He was a strong man. He was a proud man, and he refused to beg. He has no idea how he survived, but it's really willpower and a boatload of mental resilience the point of us discussing Huey's time in prison is to give you guys an insight into the type of mental strength and resilience that was required to survive such a torturous situation and we also want to explore how this foundation of resilience was transferred right from him into his revolutionary organization which was entitled the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. He learned how to control his thoughts, how to escape into an internal world of peace. This was crucial. Without the ability to regulate thoughts, a prisoner in this extreme situation would quickly lose his or her mind. Wow. You need to control your thoughts. It's easier said than done, right? Because remember, it's deprivation. So you have nothing to hold on to. 
You have no interaction. You have no way to really read. There's not enough room to read anything. They don't give you books. They don't give you an iPad. They don't give you a smartphone. You have nothing. You're naked by yourself in the dark, 24 hours a day for 15 days straight. Quote, outside jail, the brain is always being bombarded by external stimuli. These ordinary sights and sounds of life help keep our mental processes in order, rational, in order and rational. In deprivation, you have to somehow replace the stimuli and provide an interior environment for yourself. Newton talks about how even good, pleasant thoughts can turn terrifying and grotesque if they can't be controlled. The pleasant thought comes, and then another, and another, like quick cuts flashing vividly across a movie screen. At first, they are organized. Then they start to pick up pace, pushing in on top of one another, going faster, 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 faster. The pleasant thoughts are not so pleasant anymore. They are horrible and grotesque caricatures, caricatures whirling around in your head. Can't say that. Can't say that word, man. In a cage of mental, physical, and emotional anguish, Huey found his inner peace and forged an iron will, a resilience that can only be built through suffering, right? He knew how to suffer and he knew how to survive. He learned how to regulate his breathing patterns, how to use medit uh, meditative postures. They ended up being Zen Buddhist postures, but at the time, he had no idea that he was doing this. He just did it naturally. And it was really in order to prevent total physical exhaustion because you had to stand pretty much the whole time. So when he got too tired to stand, he would lay on his back. You know, well, he would lay on the floor, flat on his back, but his shoulders would only be touching the ground, right? And he would arch his hips, kind of like an arch with his knees together. And he was doing that. He didn't know what he was doing. He was just doing it to try to get some sort of comfort from standing up all day. But it ended up being he was doing... Buddhist postures without even knowing it. After a while, Newton had complete mastery of his thoughts. He could start them and stop them. He could slow them down and speed them up. It was a conscious exercise, right? Conscious. He had to work on this. It didn't just come. You had to put the time in. Early on, there came a point where Huey was afraid, right? He was afraid he would lose control of the flood of thoughts that bombarded his mind. He couldn't stop thinking, right? You're in there by yourself. You're in the dark. You're thinking constantly. He felt like his head would explode as the thoughts seemed to just pour in and out like raging rapids. Only after time was he able to control the speed of the images. He called them, quote, film clips, but they were really thought patterns. They were vivid pictures of his family, girls, friends, and good times. He learned how to control them. He learned how to control his food, his body, and his mind through a, quote, deliberate act of will, right? Deliberate act of will. After this initial experience with the Soul Breaker, Huey no longer feared isolation. In fact, after his first 15 days were up, he refused to apologize and was immediately sent back. <laughs> like after he just survived 15 days and they're like, all you got to do is say you're sorry and you won't go back. And he's like, 
screw you. And they're like, you're going back. However, the cell had no power over him now. Quote, soul breakers exist because the authorities know that such conditions would drive them to the breaking point. But when I resolved that they would not conquer my will, I became stronger than they were. I understood them better than they understood me. No longer dependent on the things of the world, I felt really free for the first time in my life. Wow. I really, really, like when I read this, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, man, because the uh, description in his autobiography is vivid. It's really, wow, it's amazing. If you guys want to read a really good autobiography, read Revolutionary Suicide. Huey P. Newton is a fantastic writer. Fantastic. With this newfound mental freedom, Huey rejoined Bobby Seale on the street, right? So he got out eventually. He, he, he's, you know, his prison experience is, is a lot longer, but we don't have the time to cover his whole thing. But this was the main point I wanted to get across was the type of mental resilience and the type of mental strength and kind of self-control, right? You know how much self-control it takes to be a member of the Black Panther Party in the late 60s when you know the police are after you, when you know the police are racist and they have guns and you have a gun and no one shoots each other, right? So you confront the police and you have a shotgun and they have a pistol and you don't draw on the police. It takes a lot of mental, uh, physical and emotional control in order to control your emotions enough to not make that fatal mistake of attacking a police officer before you're attacked. So their whole point was, remember, self-defense. The Black Panther Party for self-defense. So in order to make that claim, you have to act only in defending your life or the lives of others. So just because you have a gun and you're monitoring the police does that mean does not mean you could draw down on the police you have to have your weapon on you right but you can only use it if the police try to shoot you unjustly which means that the panthers always had to follow the letter of the law exactly and the beginning of this starts in jail right in the soul breaker the ability to control your emotional state right in a high stress situation when they could legally shoot you they have the law on their side they have they have the law on their side they have the green light shoot to kill if you touch your gun if you point your gun in the wrong direction you're dead so it's really really admirable that he was able to conquer that and then he used it later on so now if we fast forward a little bit Huey's back on the streets connected with his boy Bobby Seale the other founder of the Black Panther Party right we're moving on from there so Newton reconnected with Seale and the two joined the Soul Students Advisory Council which was founded by Mr. Ernie Allen the council was it was just a front group for the revolutionary action movement known as RAM so I'm going to use this acronym a lot in this podcast today the revolutionary Action Movement, Revolutionary Action Movement, or RAM. It was an anti-imperialist and a Marxist black nationalist organization. It was based in my hometown of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Working with RAM exposed Newton and Seal to a new world of writing and ideas. Malcolm X and the black-armed self-defense pioneer 
Mr. Robert F. Williams, were influential figures to the young men. Williams, he lived in exile in Cuba at the time, but he was in exile because he had led an armed self-defense movement to protect himself and the black residents of Monroe, North Carolina from violent Ku Klux Klan attacks through an unholy alliance of the KKK, FBI, and the local state government Williams was forced to flee North Carolina. His groundbreaking book, quote, Negro, well, not quote, it's the name of the book, Negroes with Guns, which I own, is a great book. I'm going to review it later this month. Is credited by Newton as one of the most influential pieces of literature that shaped his black self-defense ideology. But Huey, he really found some glaring flaws in Williams' book. He agreed with most of it, but there was one kind of main thing he couldn't get over. Quote, Negroes with Guns by Robert, Robert Williams had a great influence on the kind of party we developed. Williams had been active in Monroe, North Carolina with a program of armed self-defense that had enlisted many in the community. However, I did not like the way he had called on the federal government for assistance. We viewed the government as an enemy. The agency of a ruling clique that controls the country so the difference was he would not ever call and ask for help from the government like mr williams did that was the only thing he found well one of the things he found that was uh troubling ram argued that black america was essentially a colony and they framed the struggle against racism by blacks in America, of course, as part of a global anti-imperialist struggle against colonialism, right? So everyone knows what colonial, colonialism is, right? If you don't, just Google it, research it a little bit, because I don't have time to go into too much. But colonial, colonialism is a, uh, a system of oppression. But look it up, you'll see. Max Stanford defined the politics of revolutionary black nationalism in 1965. We are revolutionary black nationalists, not based on ideas of national superiority, but striving for justice and liberation. After 400 years of oppression, we realize that slavery, racism, and imperialism are all interrelated and that liberty and justice for all cannot exist peacefully with imperialism the politics of ram connected the struggles of black americans with liberation struggles abroad right so you connect it at home and then you connect to the struggles abroad so it's a worldwide struggle now it's not just blacks in america it's worldwide ram insisted that blacks were not full citizens in the u.s and let me explain why. They viewed black America as an independent nation that had been colonized at home. Since American blacks were colonial subjects rather than citizens, they owed no allegiance to the U.S. government. Therefore, they should not fight in the Vietnam War. Ram identified a common cause between blacks and the Vietnamese. And they were the pioneers, so they were some of the first ones the first opponents to the Vietnam War. Before there was any significant draft resistance, 
They criticized the draft and organized a campaign to oppose the drafting of black men into the military. Huey, he strongly opposed the war also, but the difference was he wanted to mobilize the, quote, brothers on the block, the unemployed black men seen on every street of the ghetto, the black underclass. These were the people who he thought suffered the most under the boot heel of the rapidly expanding police department. So police were, were becoming more militarized, kind of like they are now, and they were also growing. And they were becoming very, very heavy-handed in their tactics. They did not care about the community that they served because they did not live in the community they served, and they did not look like anyone else in the community they served. So there was like an invading army almost. So just imagine you're in your neighborhood, you're chilling, and all these police cars just you know roar up through you, three or four police cars, a bunch of officers who don't look like you, say, just say you're black, and they jump out. They're all white. They have gear on. They have nightsticks. And they're like, what are you guys doing? What are you doing on the block? And this is your neighborhood, right? They came out of nowhere. You were just hanging out with your friends. They harass you. They put you to the side of the car. You know, they strip search you, whatever, right? This was common, okay? Take a, pull your pants down. Reach in your pockets. Let me see what you got. You have anything that can poke me or stick me? You're just standing there with your friends on the sidewalk. So this was very common. The police were seen as outsiders, as enemies, as agents of the state, right? Most of these men that Huey wanted to target had participated in the bloody 1965 riots in Watts. We talked about that last episode also. Ram claimed to represent them, but the problem was Ram's message, right? The revolutionary action movement. Talk about that. <laughs> Ram's message didn't of of international anti-imperialism it wasn't really reaching the normal lower class you know uneducated un underemployed black man right it, it they didn't understand the the international aspect they didn't care about the international aspect right it sounded good on paper it really did it sounded great it was really really cool you know okay we're we're anti-imperialist or whatever but How's that going to help me? How's that going to help me stop the police from harassing my nephew, harassing my son, harassing me? Their message, Huey did not believe would resonate with the brothers on the block. But what he did think would resonate with them was the concept of armed self-defense. They would definitely understand the language of the gun. The Revolutionary Action Movement led the way in developing revolutionary black nationalist thought in the U.S. during the 1960s, but had few real practical ideas like how to actually put it in action. How do you put words into action? Huey gradually became dissatisfied with the group's inability to appeal to the brothers on the block and look for new ways to combine theory with practicality. So it was a problem. Ram was great, right, for ideas. They call them armchair revolutionaries, right? They had a lot of great ideas. They have a lot of great sayings and good ideology. But how are you actually going to make this stuff happen? Or are you just talking a lot? Because Huey and Bobby were men of action. They needed to actually see changes in their community. They were tired of it. We're going to talk about it more after the musical break. I hope you guys are having a great time learning with me. Ape. Thank you.
All right, we are back from musical break. They're never quite as long as I want them to be, but I get so excited. I just want to jump back into it. All right, I hope you guys are doing great. If you fell asleep on me, wake up, everybody. Wake up. We got some good stuff coming in the second half of the podcast. Once again, please, guys, if you have time, subscribe. Rate us five stars, possibly. If you have a few minutes and you're bored, write a review. But really what we want you to do is follow and turn on your notifications so you can catch all the new episodes. We put out a lot of content, and we wouldn't want anyone to miss anything. Okay, so where are we? So we're talking about the brothers on the block, how to combine theory with practicality. So by 1966, racial tensions were rising in Oakland. Mayor John Redding called a city city council meeting and he warned all the local politicians that if communication did not improve, right, between the community and the police, that Oakland would become just, quote, another Watts. Amory Bradford, a Johnson administration official, sent to Oakland in 1966 to help put together a federal plan to reduce tensions. He commented that Oakland was the city most likely to be the next the next Watts. Another visiting official described Oakland as quote a powder keg. The situation became unbearable when in September when on September 27, 1966, 16-year-old Matthew Johnson was pulled over by police in Hunters Point, which is a black neighborhood in West Oakland. Matthew and his friends had stolen a car and were going on a joyride around the predominantly black neighborhood. When police pulled them over, remember, they're just teenagers. They're just kids. Nonviolent crime. They're kids. They're scared, right? They panicked and they fled. Matthew was shot in the back of the head by police and left bleeding on the ground for over an hour. By the time paramedics arrived, Matthew was dead. The neighborhood erupted. The situation had become unbearable. Huey and Bobby could no longer tolerate any more police brutality and were fed up with the disorganized and weak attempts of the black community, especially the intellectual community, to resist. Huey had been studying law at Merritt College and San Francisco State College, and he had also been reading extensively on his own at the North Oakland Service Center Law Library. So he was well-versed. He learned... He learned that California law permitted people to carry loaded guns in public, which obviously, I guess a lot of people wish they're like that now. But uh, yeah, the law changed. <laughs> it allowed you to carry loaded weapons in public, right? As, uh, well, as long as they're not concealed, right? You can have them as long as they're not concealed. He studied California gun laws inside and out, and he learned that it was... And he learned that it was illegal to keep rifles loaded in a moving vehicle and that parolees could carry a rifle but not a handgun. So he became an expert in California gun law, which is pretty dope. And I also suggest all my Second Amendment folks out there, if you really want to be a uh, EDC, everyday carry gun owner, then you need to learn the law. Maybe not as, as well as Huey did because he learned it better than pretty much any attorney. But you need to learn the 
at least your rights, right? And I actually have some podcasts about that if you want to go back and look. According to California state law, citizens had the right to observe an officer performing their duties as long as they stood a reasonable distance away. He had finally, right, finally he found a legal, I wrote this in all caps on my outline, legal avenue <laughs> to challenge the police, armed black men, and protected community at the same time. So he hit three birds with one stone. The Black Panthers. Here we go. The foundation of the Black Panthers. The founding of the party. Quote, I read a pamphlet about voter registration in Alabama. How the people in Lowndes County had armed themselves against establishment violence. Their political group called the Lowndes County Freedom Organization had a Black Panther for its symbol. A few days later, while Bobby and I were rapping, which means talking, right, talking, talking back and forth, I suggested that we use a panther as our symbol. Taking a cue from the West Coast members of RAM, Revolutionary Action Movement, who they had worked with previously on the Seoul Students Advisory Council, Newton and Seal decided to form a chapter of the Black Panther Party. So, at this time, the Black Panther Party was in other areas. So, it's not the party we know of today. Basically, RAM, the, it's very complicated and detailed, but I'm going to try to break it down easy, easy for everyone. Okay, so, there's this organization called RAM, Revolutionary Action Movement. And in different parts of the United States, there are different chapters. Some chapters had a Black Panther as their symbol already. So what Huey and Bobby did, they are like, you know what? We're going to form our own chapter. So instead of joining an already existing chapter of RAM, they started their own stuff, right? They were still loosely affiliated with RAM, but now they're like, we're going to form a party and we're going to go in a totally different direction. So that's what they did, right? So they decided to form a chapter of the, quote, Black Panther Party. However, they took their branch of the party in an entirely different direction than other Panther chapters. Remember, at this point, there are multiple chapters of RAM that had adopted the Panther logo. Not only did it look cool, the animal was a powerful hunter that only attacked when backed into a corner. Excuse me. Excuse me. So they only, the Panther was the type of animal that was powerful, was fierce, but never attacked anyone but their prey unless they were backed into a corner so they could protect their uh, environment around them. The creature perfectly symbolized the state of the black nationalist movement at the time. The first encounter with police in early 1967 we covered in the last episode. So if you want to see that first epic encounter between the police and the Black Panthers, the early Black Panthers, so Bobby Seale... Huey P. Newton, and Lil Bobby Hutton, who we talked about in the last episode. If you want details, you just got to check it out. But let's just say that the Panthers embarrassed the local police and gained many new recruits for the cause. Bobby Seale provided the first guns for the Black Panther Party for self-defense from his own personal collection, a 30-30 Winchester rifle and a shotgun. But even before he joined the Air Force, right? So Bobby Seale was an Air Force veteran. In the episode entitled Oakland Boys, I talked about the backgrounds of Huey and Bobby Seale. 
Bobby was a Air Force veteran. He went to the military. He served with honor, right? Uh, uh, honorable discharge. But he, he became a master of firearms in the military. But before that, his father used to take him out and go hunting a lot. So he's always been around guns. So he was very comfortable around them, using them, and also training other Panthers on them. Bobby Seale had been a, around guns most of his life. Once the new re recruits started pouring in, obtaining more guns became the first priority, right? So that was priority number one was, okay, we don't have enough guns for all the people that are joining. So what did they do? They approached Mr. Richard Aoki, a Japanese-American radical who they knew for sure had an extensive and very impressive collection of firearms. Aoki was a small, friendly, energizer bunny type character with a dirty mouth and an easy sense of humor. So he was a jokester and he, he liked to talk dirty. He had a dirty mouth. Aoki had a reputation of being a dedicated revolutionary, 100% committed to third, third world liberation. Richard was more than happy to help out his fellow revolutionaries get started, right? So he donated two of his personal guns to the Black Panther cause. They were dope, too. An M1 Garand rifle and a 9mm pistol. Both were military spec. Now, the new party needed money to purchase even more weapons, right? So two isn't enough. Now they need to raise some money, right? They need an office. They need some money. They need to start advertising. How are they going to do this? So, Huey, as the genius he is, right? He came up with the idea. He was an idea guy. He came up with the idea to sell Mao Zedong's little red book on the Berkeley campus to raise money. Okay, so the little red book. The little red book, if you guys don't know, was a small but very influential book of the sayings and quotes of Mao Zedong who at the time was getting a lot of mainstream news coverage. So he's a, if you don't know, look him up, all right? He's a very influential world figure in the history of, uh, really, the world. They went to Chinatown in San Francisco. They bought the books for 30 cents apiece and then sold them on Berkeley's college campus for a dollar. Soon they raised enough money to buy a 357 Magnum revolver for Myoki and a high-standard shotgun at a local department store. Over the next couple of months, while patrolling the police, Newton and Seal gained a small following. Huey, or Bobby got Huey a job at the War on Poverty Youth Program, where he worked, where Bobby had actually worked. And what they did was they used part of their combined income to rent out an office on, Gro on Grove Street and 56th in North Oakland near Merritt College. In early 1967, the Black Panther Party for self-defense, had only a handful of members and received zero, counted zero media coverage. This all changed, however, when Betty Sabaz, Malcolm X's widow, visited the Bay Area to be the keynote speaker at the founding conference of a new cultural center, which was called the Black House. There was a lot of people, you know, this was not that long after her husband's assassination, so there are a lot of people who feared that Mrs. Abaz would become a target like her husband. So Mr. Roy Ballard of the RAM, well, right, of the Revolutionary Action Movement, asked Bobby Seale, his old buddy, if the Black Panthers for self-defense 
would provide an armed escort for Mrs. Sabaz. Right? In early afternoon of February 21st, he also asked Bobby to speak, to be a speaker as well. On the early afternoon of February 21st, eight members of the Black Panther Party, dressed in weight in waist-length leather jackets, powder blue shirts, and black berets cocked to the right, met Mrs. Sabaz at the airport. Quote, the Panthers made their way in military fashion to American Airlines Gate 47, where Shabazz was scheduled to arrive. According to one eyewitness, each one, like clockwork, set themselves up at various stations at the arrival gate and waited, rifles in hand. From the airport, the Panthers escorted Mr. Shabazz to the office of Ramparts Magazine, which was a really, really, you know, up-and-coming black liberation kind of liberal leftist magazine for an interview with Mr. Eldridge Cleaver, who would be the future minister of information for the Panthers. Not yet. Right now, he's just a reporter, but he would later become a famous black Panther. After concluding the interview, the group had had, had another intense and aggressive encounter with local police. So they had had an initial encounter at the airport, but it wasn't that bad. It was kind of like a minor scuffle. Once they saw the, the Panthers walking into the airport with rifles, the police were kind of like, mm, we don't know what to do. But now they had another one on the way out, on the way back to the airport. Chuck Banks, who was a local, very aggressive reporter, tried to push his way through the Panthers' bodyguard. When he tried to push Newton aside, he was yanked up by the collar and slammed up against a wall by Newton. Police jumped into action. Several reached for their pistols. One even began shouting at Newton. Newton stopped, turned, and stared coldly at the officer. Bobby Seal tried to get Newton to back off, to back down, but Huey ignored him and approached the officer. What's the matter? You got an itchy finger? The cop didn't respond, and a staring contest began. Both had their hands on their weapons. The other officers yelled, Get back, get back, what are you doing? at their comrades to stand down, but the... The police officer, he was very stubborn. He ignored his comrades. Okay, you big, fat, racist pig. Draw your gun. When the cop didn't budge, Newton yelled, Draw it! Draw it, you cowardly dog! Finally, the cop gave up, oh, man, sighing loudly and hanging his head in defeat. Newton laughed in his face. <laughs> Punk. And the remaining Panthers dispersed, whisking Mrs. Sabaz to safety. The legend of Huey P. Newton and the Panthers were born. That is all we got for this episode of the Act Protect Engage podcast. Thank you to all my listeners. I love you guys. I appreciate all y'all. I hope you have a great weekend. We're coming out with another episode. I don't know when, sometime this weekend. Remember, if you want to learn more about the Panthers, go back a few episodes and start from the beginning. We're going into detail. This is going to be a great series. We're not done yet. God bless y'all. Stay safe. Ape out. Oh, I'm not out yet. Remember, <laughs> put God first. Put your family first. Get after it. Stay positive. Don't let anyone tell you you cannot achieve your dreams. Thank you so much for joining me. I love you guys. Ape.
We out. Peace.